Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. So I was going to hang on to this interview for a while until I reached the point where I could tell the story in my own way, but that may very well be months from now, so I'm releasing it now, in time for the centenary of the events of the so-called Lost Battalion. I'm glad to do so because speaking with our guest was an honor and a privilege. Robert J. Laplander is the author of Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. An enthusiast of the Great War for decades, Mr. Laplander has amassed a vast collection of documentation and paraphernalia related to the story of the men of the U.S. 77th Division who were surrounded by the Germans in the Charlevoix Ravine from the 2nd through the 7th of October 1918. This collection has helped inform the definitive history he has written of the men of the 306th Machine Gun Battalion, the 307th and 308th Infantry Regiments, and their epic five days in the Argonne. Mr. Laplander is considered an authority on the subject of the Lost Battalion and has appeared in numerous radio and television interviews, including PBS's 2017 three-part documentary named The Great War. I want to give you an idea of the caliber of man Mr. Laplander is. First, he agreed to come on the show and be interviewed in the evening on a Sunday night. And as you no doubt saw, he gave me an hour and a half of his time. However, that's not all. Since I first reached out to him earlier this year about directions to the Lost Battalion's perimeter, Mr. Laplander has been incredibly helpful. He wrote detailed instructions on how to get out to Charlevoix Ravine and took the time to speak with me on the phone about the site. Not only that, though, he also offered for me to call him directly from France if I had any trouble locating the site, and he would then walk me in by phone. Facebook and social media definitely has its bad points, but meeting people like Mr. Laplander reinforces my faith in what social media was intended to do, help connect us with fellow enthusiasts, and create community. Okay, so I'm going to warn you now. Um, this interview contains the very same lame attempt at humor I made in episode 48 about my huge World War I book deal coming any day now. Uh, for subjecting you to that twice, uh, I sincerely apologize. In my defense, uh, I am a dad and have long since crossed the line into dad jokes territory. Sorry. Please take a moment to check out the links provided in the episode description as links for the World War I Centennial Commission and Doughboy MIA will be provided. Mr. Laplander also has some exciting news for 2019, so be sure to listen to the end. If you have any questions or concerns, you know you do not need to hesitate. Verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Talk to you again soon. Take care. All right. All right. So we are recording, uh, and 
My name is Mike, Battles of the First World War podcast, and I am here with Mr. Robert Laplander, uh, author of Finding the Lost Battalion. Um, you may have seen him. If the name is familiar, that's because you probably saw him on the PBS documentary, uh, America and the Great War, uh, where he discussed um, the, the, the story of the Lost Battalion. Mr. Laplander, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank thank you so so much. Thank you for uh, taking time. We're currently recording this on a Sunday evening, so thank you so much. Um, and also, I um, want to tell you thank you for the directions to the Lost Battalion site um, in Charlevoix Ravine, um, and also, uh, if I may, um, thank you so much for the offer of uh, being able to bother you from overseas if if we needed so that we could so that you could literally walk us in if we needed it um i I really really appreciate that no bother at all um so this is this is a part that i'm finding like more and more interesting in in speaking with um world war one enthusiasts um so we'll just go out and start with the first question which is so what do you do for a living well, in real life, uh, I'm a truck tire mechanic, a road service mechanic, and uh, I play music. Um, that's only because my family likes to eat. And selling books in World War One and stuff, you don't exactly become rich. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I um, so I, I told people at at my workplace that um, that my my own book deal is likely coming soon, and I'll probably have to leave. It, you know, very quickly because the cash advance will be huge. And, uh, and one, one person was looking at me like, really is the world War one book market like that big? And, and I, at that point, like, I was like, no man, not, not at all. <laughs> Everything I just said. Is works nonsense, out for so. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. What, what kind of music do you, uh, do you play actually? Um, I, play honky tonk and rockabilly we've been um playing music for over 40 years the band i have right now uh is called texas 55 and we are in our 30th year oh my god that's that's wonderful that's great oh super cool um so roadside mechanic musician um how did you become interested in world war one of all subjects i i've always been fascinated by the first world war going all the way back to when I was a kid, I, I really don't remember a time that I wasn't fascinated with it. And I always used the war as kind of an escape from music. Total, total immersion equals total burnout in anything you do. And sure. music is like that. And we, we used to play quite a bit, four or five nights a week. And kind of to get away from that, I would study the war. And, uh, you know, it, it, it started out studying fighter pilots like most kids and uh, moved on to understanding what happened on the ground and what a cataclysmic event it was. Um, it, it really is the event that shaped the 20th century. If you want to understand the 20th century, you have to understand the First World War. Agreed. 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 Um, so in uh, page nine of your book, the, the third edition of Finding the Lost Battalion, you write that... Um, for whatever reason, the cosmos chose me to fill the role of curator of the Lost Battalion in this time. Um, 
I, I love the way you, you put that. Like, um, so th- that's, how, how did you become interested in, in the lost battalion specifically? So from world war one, you, you, you drill down to the subject of the lost battalion, um, ju- just that, that one area. Well, anybody that studies, you know, the American participation in the war is at least peripherally familiar with the story. It was mm-hmm. arguably the most overreported story of our participation to come out. Even before these guys got out of the ravine that they were trapped in, they were already heroes at home in the newspapers. It, it was a great, wow. it, it's a great example of the power of the press, even back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, even when you had, you know, an 18 to 24 hour uh, time lag in getting print, getting word into print. Um, so everybody, mm-hmm. everybody kind of knew about it. If it was the 20s or 30s, everybody knew about it. Nowadays, not so much. But if you study the war, you know about it. And um, I don't remember there being a time, like I said, that, that I didn't know about it. I don't remember where I first heard about the story, but it always seemed to be there in the background. And uh, mm-hmm. I did a lot of shopping for books for my collection at a place called Renaissance Books in the uh, the airport in Milwaukee in Mitchell field airport. And I go there every couple of weeks and browse through the world war one section. And I got a lot of great titles and it was July of 1997. I was in there one Saturday and I happened to pick up a copy of history of the 77th division in the world war. I said, well, this is one I don't have. So I started mm-hmm. paging through it and I thought, Hey, the 77th, that's, they had the lost battalion, didn't they? And sure enough, there's the story. So, I took it home. I bought it for $15 and I took it home and I spent the rest of the afternoon with the 77th as they trained and then went to France and fought their battles and came home. And the story of the lost battalion was in there. And when I got done with it, I read it a second time and I had some questions. Mm-hmm. It didn't, some pieces didn't seem to make sense. So I started doing research and the more research I did, the more I found, the more I found, the more questions I asked. Uh, within a year I was contemplating doing something on it. And within two years, uh, I had decided that a book needed to be done. Another one, there's, there had been one written in the thirties and, uh, then there was a shorter one in the sixties, but neither one of them really told the full story. There were a lot of holes and all the pieces of this story were out there. It just took the internet, the modern era, to gather all these pieces together, I needed to be able to contact people across the country and across the world who had the different pieces. It, I needed to be able to research um, the National Archives so that I could go to the National Archives. Wow. Um, and it took my wife and I uh, about eight years to put it all together, and we traveled hundreds of miles and dug through thousands of boxes of records and talked to hundreds of families and did interviews and gathered in stuff from individuals and, you know, letters and diaries and unpublished manuscripts and memoirs. And um, within the first five years, we had the largest collection of lost battalion information in the world. Um, Then the movie came out in 2001. When the movie came out in 2001, the floodgates really opened all of a sudden lost battalion family members started coming out of the woodwork. And that's when we really got a leg up on a lot of stuff and really made a lot of contacts and started realizing that this was 
much more than just another story. It was perhaps one of the stories of the war. To my mind, it is the story, but um, I'm a little biased. And after the first 15 years had gone by, all of a sudden we looked around and here we are surrounded by this stuff in our house. My kids know all about the story. Um, wow. We've been on TV, we've been on the radio and all this. And it, it, it just kind of occurred to me that I don't know that I picked the story as much as I was picked for it, maybe. Mm-hmm. When you believe that there are certain things that you, you're meant to accomplish in life. I think maybe this is something mm-hmm. I was meant to accomplish, that, that I was picked out by the cosmos or God or whatever and said, here, you do this. <laughs> take care of this story. Um, and, and, and it is, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a curator. Uh, I'm a custodian of history, just a, a tour guide to an event out of the past. And in order to be a good tour guide for that, I need to know everything there is to know about it as much as I can, both good and bad. Um, mm-hmm. and it, we kind of downplay some of the things that don't look good, uh, simply because, a lot of that is personal stuff for these guys and, and who nobody needs to know that. Right. Yeah. No, agree. Well, everybody's got, everybody's got their warts, but, uh, it's, it's been an amazing journey, you know, going into, uh, 21, almost 22 years now that we've been looking at this and it's, it's part of my life now. Every day I do something long yeah. and every day, every week I talk to somebody else, another family member, or somebody sends me an email, or there's something that comes in the mail, or I discovered more information, it grows every week. And wow, somewhere along the line, I became the guy for it. Okay. <laughs> if that's, that's what I have to do, then that's what I have to do. And I, and, and I, I relish the job. I really do. Um, it's something that I can really take to heart and really be proud of. And what the best part about it is being able to carry on this history of these guys and keep them from being forgotten. No man or woman's sacrifice in the cause of freedom should ever be forgotten. And what those men went through all those years ago in that forest was so much worse than what most people realize. If we can keep their sacrifices alive, that we can remember what happened in this war that's pretty much forgotten. Um, yes, right there up there with Korea. It's kind of the forgotten war overshadowed by world war two. And, um, it's, it's a strange thing to talk about sometimes because so many people are so fascinated by it and they've never heard of it. And having lived with it all these years, it's almost impossible for me to believe that somebody couldn't know about this. But it's true. Right. Um, the Meuse-Argonne is the largest battle America has ever been involved in, largest and bloodiest battle, and no one has ever heard of it. Uh, agreed. I, I just started um, listening to uh, Richard Rubin's um, Last of the Doughboys, um, and it's it, it, he uh, – Mr. Rubin opens up his book with talking about um, how – you know, like how – you know, b- before so many things happened, like there was World War One, um, but but he also talks about like how there are there are monuments everywhere 
to the war and yet yet we we hardly even know about it and um i've i've been noticing that like ever since i i started doing this podcast uh um and started podcasting about four years ago like you know of course like it's like once you think about um like a, a black nissan truck you start seeing black nissan trucks everywhere uh now i see you know like world war one monuments everywhere and i'm and i'm like you know like how 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 do we like not talk about this more but it's um it it's definitely feels like the like the the forgotten war and, and as you opened up the episode saying you know it's it's had so much impact um i regularly get get the eye rolls from the family when i'm like yeah so you know that that had its basis in uh in world war one and um they're like of course it did like well no it did like <laughs> so, yeah, welcome to the club you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and also my uh if i might add your kids know everything about the lost battalion um uh i think my daughter uh knows far more about the battle of the psalm than any 10 year old should so uh <laughs> yeah my uh, i i'm leaving saturday this next saturday for uh three weeks in the argonne at the army and, um, my son, so awesome. is, my oldest son who's 13 is really, really upset that he can't go. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You know, he wants <laughs> to see all these places that he's heard about and, and, and understand that he's been to Gettysburg and we've walked the ground and, and he's, he's explored that and understood that. Now he would really like to understand what is essentially his family legacy, um, our in this house, the Lost Battalion is our family legacy now, and the kids will talk about it at the drop of a dime. They don't have a problem telling their friends about it, but they don't push it on their friends either. So, mm-hmm. and I take them around here to see the memorials every Memorial Day. We visit a, a small corner of a cemetery in Milwaukee where there is a group of men who were brought home after the war. Uh, who had died and every Memorial day were there. Every veterans day were there. They understand uh, the impact of that war and what it did. Um, my wife, on the other hand, before she met me, didn't know a thing about it. And we recently, she and I published a picture book in the lost battalion called faces of the lost battalion. And she, okay. you wrote the forward to it. And in it, she mentions that she, uh, that there's these memorials everywhere. They're all around us and nobody knows about it. We walk past them without even realizing it anymore. And she was the same way. And now, you know, we've been married 18 years. She's been to France three times with me. I've drug her all over the Argonne forest, (laughs) all over the country and stuff. And she knows more about history now than she ever thought that she would. And truly understands what it means, what, what that war meant to America and to the world. So Mm -hmm. if I don't do anything else, I've changed one person. So. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I've, I've, um, that's so, I, I think that's so awesome that, that, um, you, you and your wife have, have worked on this project and that uh, you speak of, this is your family legacy that like, um, like your, your kids have bought into it too. Like this is, this is what you guys work on. I, I think that's just so, so awesome. Um, that's, that's, that's really great. The seven, um, division is everywhere in the house. Um, I, I've gotten a couple of awards from the 77th and, you know, quite a few challenge coins and they're on display and, 
you know, the artwork is on display and the artifacts that we brought home are displayed. And then there's the books. If you go in my office, there's books everywhere, uh, both put away and not put away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And understood a huge p- proportion of them deal with the Argonne and with uh, what happened, especially in First Corps with the 77th. Um, anytime there's anything that I can gather in information on the 77th, I'm right there to get it. And the kids are, are welcome to look at this stuff, to read through it, to understand it. And I find my 13-year-old more and more delving into things that when I was 13, I, I wouldn't have had a clue what it was. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, he's pulling down uh, History of the U.S. Army and the Great War, Volume 5, which is all about the the Muse Argonne, and he's reading battle orders. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, and not not being bored by them, so... Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so awesome. I, I, um, I was, I was allowed. And I, I say that with, yeah, that I was allowed because I can't, frankly, can't believe that I got away with it for six months. But, uh, in our kitchen, I was allowed to put up my battle of the Psalm battle map, uh, for when I was writing the Psalm episodes, uh, the missus let me hang that up there. Uh, it, very much clashed with everything else in the room, but she, she allowed it. And, uh, but I would like regularly show the village names and everything. And, um, you know, like to, to my daughter and like point stuff out and say like, so from here they went there. And, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really cool. <laughs> my wife and I um, spent uh, some time on the Psalm, um, both during our honeymoon and then in another trip after that. Um, and we enjoyed the Psalm quite a bit. We enjoyed Eep up in Belgium quite a bit as well. Um, I have to get there next. But for me, the Argonne is really where it's at. Agreed. Agreed. And that, um, that actually personally, um, I, boy, this is a kind of like turning into the family episode, but I, I would like to take, uh, the, the missus out there because, um, I've tried to explain to her like the, the beauty of the area and, um, just the, the fields, the forest or, even, um, gosh, like driving through the Argonne forest, um, when we were there last month, um, my stepson and I, and, and one of my army buddies, um, we drove through it, it had been raining. So it was kind of misty and just foggy, like even inside the forest, but you had like these vibrant greens and it's thick, thick forest. And I was just like, 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 this is just a beautiful area like today. Um, so I, I, I don't think you can convey that in words. It's something that you have to see, you know, like, um, like, like anything else. But um, well, in, here in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin is a lot like the Argonne. Where I grew up was in the Nicolay National Forest, and it's a lot like the Argonne up in that area. So it felt very familiar the first time we got in there, the first time we started walking through it, and when we realized, you know, how primeval it can be in that forest. And, and really how thick it is. Uh, there's areas in the forest yeah. that this all summer long, as long as the, the, the trees are leafed out, the sunlight never touches the ground. Um, it's just incredible. And this is something that I grew up around. So I was very familiar with it. Uh, my wife, not quite so much, um, but she, she really got to love the area as well. 
um, for the beauty, not just for the war, but for the beauty too, because it is a very gorgeous forest. There is a lot, to, mm-hmm. a lot to see outside of the war as well. Awesome. Um, so speaking of like you already kind of knowing, recognizing the, the type of forest the Argon was, are there any connections uh, between the, the lost battalion and your hometown area in, in Wisconsin? Well, my barber, uh, he and I didn't discover this until just last year. My barber's great uncle was in the lost battalion <laughs> and he's, oh my God, what a small world. And, uh, wow. We just found that out. Charles Whittlesey, of course, was from northern Wisconsin, about five hours from here. Um, and we've spent quite a bit of time up in Florence, where he was from. Uh, wow. There is one fella who was from Viola, Wisconsin, who was in the Lost Battalion and survived. And then there was one fella who was born in Wisconsin and drafted out of South Dakota who did not. So oh. um, we've, we've found... It, quite a few connections with the 77th. Uh, there were a couple of machine gunners from this area that were there. And, um, but as far as the lost battalion itself, outside of Whittlesey, uh, there were only two other Wisconsin men there. Wow. 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 Super cool. And now, um, major, major and later Lieutenant Colonel Whittlesey, he, he attended, um, was it Williams college here, here in Massachusetts? Yeah. Yeah. Williams college. Um, okay. And is, is that where his papers are stored today? When he committed suicide, his family donated mm-hmm. all of his military items to Williams college and his, his service trunks are there full of his clothes, um, his uniforms, uh, the glasses that he wore in the pocket, his helmet, uh, a lot of the papers oh, wow. with him, his, uh, his message books, um, the original surrender letter that the Germans sent in, he left that to his second in command, uh, George McMurtry, and he later donated it to Williams College. So that is there. His Medal of Honor is there. Wow. My wife and I were lucky enough to get to spend an entire day going through all of his things. Oh, wow. You know, photographing things and making copies of all the, the, uh, the orders and the paperwork and all that kind of stuff that, that was there. Uh, so that we've got that in our collection in the Whittlesey collection. Um, I know one of his uniforms is on kind of tour right now this year, going from museum to museum being displayed the jacket that he wore in the pocket, along with the boots that he wore in the pocket. Um, wow. The glasses that he wore uh, are missing one bow. Those are in there. I, Actually, besides being able to hold his Medal of Honor, I had a chance to put on his helmet. And um, it was oh, very wow. strange going through all this stuff because it was we kept kind of looking over his shoulder, almost like we were going through somebody's closet, you know. Right, right. Caught, you know? Um, yeah. But it was also very moving because this, this was, it's touching history. It's, it's actually yes. touching the history. When you, when, when you pick up that jacket that he wore in the pocket and all through the Argonne and it's lined, you know, he had a specially lined jacket for it and you, and you touch this and you feel it and you realize this is what he was wearing when he was there. These are the messages he wrote 
in the pocket, you know, the, while it was happening, you know, it's, it's almost kind of an ethereal experience uh, to be able yeah. to touch that kind of thing and be that close to somebody um, that you respect and admire that much. Wow. So you have, um, so in, in your book, you have a photograph of that. I think of that message of um, when, when they were getting shelled by American artillery on, on October 4th, the one where I believe he, did they tie it to the pigeon? And and basically major Whittlesey wrote like, for God's sakes, please stop. We are on or something to that. 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us for heaven's sake. Stop it. Wow. And wow. We did manage to find uh, a picture of the original message um, from the, the pigeon message book that Whittlesey used to send that message out. And uh, it's another one of those things that, boy, <laughs> this is it. I mean, they, they sat in that, in that pocket there and were getting, just getting the crap shelled out of them by their own artillery. And yeah, part of, part of the story uh, of Jeremy flying the message out and just barely making it back. It's a great part of the story. I just love that part of the story. And you could never tell anybody in the lost battalion that Cherami was not the one that stopped the artillery barrage, but in fact, she wasn't. <laughs> um, there was a right. artillery observer behind the lines who, who through, through meeting up with the 308th regimental commander, they got on the phone about five minutes before Cherami got back. So they beat the message by about five minutes, but it doesn't really matter. Um, Every time we go to Washington, D.C., now my wife and I, we have to stop by Smithsonian and visit Jeremy and get our picture taken again. And um, it's, it's one of the first parts of the story that we came in contact with that made it real was when we went to Smithsonian mm-hmm. and saw Jeremy for the very first time. And if you look very close, you can still see in her breast where, where the hole was. And... Uh, missing the leg and all that. It, it's, it's just an amazing, amazing part of the story. And I sat next to the glass case for about a half an hour, just staring at this bird, imagining the whole thing wow. again, you know, one of my favorite stories about Jeremy was uh, Lieutenant Sherman eager, who was in the pocket with company G after the war, Many years after the war, he was in Washington, D.C. with his family on vacation, and they were in the Smithsonian, and they came around the corner, and there was Jeremy in the little oh. case. And Lieutenant Eager just stopped. And he the last time he had seen that bird was October 4th of 1918. Wow. And he started to tell the story. And by the time he got done, there was a crowd around him. Uh, and he looked at his grandchildren and he said, um, if it hadn't have been for that bird, none of you would be here. Wow. Wow, man. That's, that's really moving. That's it's amazing. Like, like how these events, you know, can, can dictate so many other events that follow afterwards, you know? And, um, and I mean, if, like you said, like that, it wasn't up to that bird, but I would, 
I would never argue it with with any. No, you could, any you could never argue with anybody because nobody knew what happened behind the lines, and that didn't matter. Right? They saw that bird leave. They saw that bird go out with the message, and then they saw the artillery stop. That bird saved them, and that's all. Yeah, to it. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Um. So, so we we've been talking about like um. So October fourth. They're they're in the pocket and they're getting bombarded. But um, to to just backtrack a little bit, um, by October second, um, Major Whittlesey's first uh, battalion, three hundred eighth Infantry, um, a- along with other a mishmash of other units as well, um, they they were in Charlevoix Ravine, um, and then they were by the end of October second, they were effectively surrounded by German troops. They had. They had Whittlesey and his men had advanced um, without regard to losses or flanks, as he had been told to do. Um, and as a result, they were they were surrounded. So now this is how the the story of the lost battalion begins. Um, obviously, this whole situation was created by a number of factors, um, and and. Um, of course, please, uh, for interested listeners, like please go out and get this book. It is wonderfully written, and you will be hooked from from the moment you you start reading it. But, uh, Mister Laplander, can you briefly summarize just some of some of the factors that led to the to Whittlesey's force being surrounded? Well, part of the problem of the whole thing was that we weren't supposed to take the Ar- Argonne in force. For centuries, armies have fought around mm-hmm. the forest because it's such a dense tangle. So mm-hmm. the 28th was supposed to move up on the right of, of the Air River Valley, and the the French 4th Army was supposed to go up the left of the Aisne River Valley, and they were supposed to meet above the forest. And while the 77th would clear the forest, they would push on what was thought to be a retreating enemy. If the enemy did not retreat, they would be surrounded and pinched off. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't work like that. The flanks were unable to keep up, the flanking units. And the problem in the forest was that from day one, they had a hard time keeping contact with their own flanks, with their own units. Um, all four of the intra- infantry regiments of the 77th were online, the 305th, 306th, 307th, and 308th from um, east to west. And they had a hard enough time staying in contact with each other. And within the regiments, they had a hard enough time staying in contact in between companies and battalions. The order went out that they would advance with regard to flanks. The idea being, if you push forward and you don't worry about your flanks, and the guys on your flank push mm-hmm. forward and don't worry about their flanks, and the guys on their flanks push forward, and then everybody's flanks are covered, and you're all moving ahead, right? Well, Agreed, yep. That Understood. may look great on paper, but in the Arctic <laughs> right. it didn't work. So Whittlesey pushed in, and by the 28th, by the evening of the 28th of September, he was out on a lonely hillside called Low Moor, and he got surrounded out there for 48 hours with 400 men. This was known as the small pocket. This is the first time they were surrounded. And 
the Germans never quite understood that they had them surrounded, that they could have just pounded them to nothing because they were in the midst of a withdrawal. So the Germans mm -hmm. kind of pushed back, let, let this one go. Whittlesey, on the other hand, realized that this was a close call. And he talked to his regimental commander and said, listen, we need to really, you know, keep up with the flanks a little bit better. But th those were not the orders that came down from 77th Command. So when they moved up into the forest deeper and by October 2nd, he had made it over the top of the southern ridge of the Charlevoix Ravine, which was called Hill 198, and made it into the Charlevoix up to the road that was his objective. Unfortunately, his flanks had not kept contact with him. Now, he had warned his regimental commander that day, if we go up there, we're probably going to get surrounded again. He had actually warned his regimental commander that of that the night before. And mm. they said, those, those are the orders. So that afternoon, uh, when he got the order once again, he said, all right, I'll attack. But whether you hear from me again or not, I don't know. And wow. it was five days later before they were able to get out of that ravine before his regimental commander heard from him again. Um, but without flank support, he got down into a ravine that was basically an untenable position. And the Germans that night slipped in behind and cut the runner line that they had going back. And that was it. Um, they occupied the high ground to the North and South. They set up, um, picket lines in the East and West in the bottom of the ravine and just started to hammer them. And for the wow. next five days, that's exactly what they did. Well, meanwhile, the rest of the 308th and the 307th uh, almost destroyed themselves trying to get through to Whittlesey. They weren't the lost battalion because they were lost. Everybody knew where they were. Um, even the guys in the lost battalion right. would tell you. They'd say, you know, hell, we weren't lost. The Germans knew where we were the whole time. Um, everybody <laughs> knew where they were. They just couldn't get to them. And as far as being a battalion... They were actually elements of four different battalions. Um, it was a it, it was a conglomerate, right. about seven hundred men that went in, and only one hundred one hundred ninety four were able to walk out under their own, own power at the end. Its casualty rate is seventy two percent in five days. It sounds like a wow. bloodbath, but in reality, that's the kind of casualties all units were suffering in the Argonne. That was. Wow. Yeah, it's it's um I uh I've been reading uh, I just finished um Ed Langle's book um To Conquer Hell and um this is this has been a lot a lot of new information for for me personally like I did not realize like I know how big American divisions were compared to other allied divisions we were um and I discussed this with um Randy Galky uh in the interview with him like we had you know, 27,000 men versus like, you know, 12 to 15,000 um, with the French and British, but like our own massive divisions being rendered combat ineffective, like within a few days of fighting in the Mers Argonne. It was like, I really, like, I had no idea, like, you know, how, just how awful it was. It was, um, it was far worse than, than anybody realizes anymore. Um, at one time, you mentioned the Argonne. 
in public and it sent a chill up spines because the people knew what it meant. The 35th division, for instance, the 35th division launches off on the 26th of September by the 30th, they were done. They were broken. And the first division had to come and take over for them. And when the first division came in to pass through them, the only way they found the line was by coming to contact with the enemy. And the only people that the the 35th had left on the line anymore were cooks and engineers. That division really really took it in the neck. That's what the Argonne did. Wow. Wow. um, As far as like the, the, the lost battalion, um, how much, uh, God, how, how much of this is, is due to general Alexander, the, the, the 77th, 77th division commander. Um, how much of the situation is, is due to his orders and like he, he was just, you know, another, you know, another officer in the chain of command, you know, taking his orders and passing them down. Um, so yeah, like how, how, how much of that was due to him and, how much of it wasn't? Was this just the, the way things went? Pershing made it clear right from the beginning that we needed to push forward aggressively and quickly. And he also made it clear right from the beginning that if you didn't follow orders and you didn't perform, you were going to get replaced. And that's all there was to it. Um, mm-hmm. it Pershing as a commander was a good commander. He wasn't the best. Um and he had he had a really mm-hmm. tough road to hoe. Uh, it, this was our first coalition war. There was no roadmap for him to follow. He had to figure all this out himself. But he was also mm-hmm. something of a bully when it came to orders. You're going to do it my way, or I'm going to kick you out of here. Well, that's not oh, a good wow. way to get anybody to do anything. Um, and all of the general officers that were in charge of the corps and divisions and whatnot. These were all career officers, and they all realized that the war was their chance to become superstars. And they did everything that they could right, right. to not just win the war, but to advance their own careers as well. Um, General Alexander was a little bit different than the others in that he started out as a private. <laughs> he enlisted at private oh. and worked his way up, and he filled every rank between private and general. Um, And he did not go to West Point. He went to the Army War College at Fort Leavenworth, which made him less in the eyes of the other uh, commanders in France. He had a big chip on his shoulder. He had a lot to prove, and he was not going to let his division look like the one that couldn't win the war. He also came into the 77th at a critical time. Now, the 77th was the first National Army Division, the first draft Army Division to reach France. And all eyes were on the draft mm-hmm. Army. Nobody, nobody really knew whether the uh, draft Army was going to work in a modern sense, it, whether you were going to be able to take modern people, people who were far better educated than in the Civil War, and actually force them to fight. Mm-hmm. force them to be soldiers. And the 77th had a lot of esprit de corps. But when they got under the Vel, they started to fall apart under combat conditions because they had not trained as 
one unit. They had not trained as a division. They had learned to be individual regiments that had huge pride in themselves and did not work and play well oh, with others. Okay. So they started to fall apart. And the, the general in command at the time, Pershing, looked at him and went, uh-uh, this can't happen because if the 77th falls apart, that means our whole draft army idea is going to come apart and we can't win this war. The 77th has to, has to succeed. So he relieved him of command and he put General Alexander in charge, Robert Alexander. Robert Alexander, who had this big chip on his shoulder, a lot to prove, came over from the 32nd Division where he made mm-hmm. commander, and he was not well-liked in the 32nd at all um, because of it. Oh. But he was he had also count, originally come to France as the commander of the 40th, uh, 41st Division, which was a depot division, and they loved him there. They thought he was a great division commander for a depot division. But in order to further your career, you had to be a combat leader. So... Alexander did everything that he could to get into a combat position. When he came into the 77th on the Vell, he really put the whip to him. He really sat them down, talked to his officers and said, this is how it is. You need to work together. And he did train them well. And he put together a really good organization. He was the right guy at the right time in the right position and really made the 77th Mm -hmm. become what they were. When they went into the Argonne, when the pressure really started to build, that's when the, the flaws in, in Robert Alexander's thinking and in his, his way of leadership began to show through. He understood that if, if they didn't get results, you know, if he didn't get results, Pershing was going to get rid of him. That wasn't going to happen. And he made it clear using Pershing's own sort of persona, he made it clear to his officers, if you think I'm going to get out of here, you got another thing coming because I will get rid of all of you before I, I allow myself to get rid of, been gotten rid of. So he really drove his, his forces hard in the Argonne. He expected results without understanding what was really happening on the battlefield, without really understanding how bad it was in the Argonne and without really understanding what they were up against. Um, he had a tendency to really berate his generals. He stretched the truth on a regular basis to get them to understand things uh-huh. his way. Um, mm-hmm. He was not above relieving somebody. And he was not above having personal issues with his officers and letting those dictate how he dealt with people. He was in charge and that's all there was to it. Um, on the other hand, the 77th would not have been able to do what they did in the Argonne Forest without somebody like that driving them. Um, it, right, a right. tepid leader was not what was needed in the Argonne Forest. Now, nobody knew that going in. It's easy for us to look back on this, you know, 100 years later and say, yeah, it's a good thing he was there because any tepid leader, the 77th would have fallen apart. And it would have been another repeat of what happened to the 35th. The whole thing would have just come apart and we would have never taken the Argonne Forest. And because of him, the 77th racked up more kilometers of advance against the enemy than any other division in France, including the, the, you know, the big red one and the second division with the Marines and stuff. 
The 77th had more kilometers of advance against the enemy than anyone else. They're also number three on the list as far as kilometers that go, though. So it it's kind of a trade-off. Alexander was a good man at the time, but at the same time, he was a tough commander to deal with. Um, he had a tendency to blame others for things and to dance, and that did not make him popular with anybody in First Corps or anybody at uh, higher command with the AAF. He was not one of the war's most recognized generals. Very few people know about him. He wrote a book after the war, and it did not sell well. He just wasn't oh, a loved oh. man. Wow. So, so like you say, like it, there are parts of him, it, it doesn't sound all bad, but you know, obviously he, he does have his warts and faults as well. Exactly. So, I, he, uh, he, was a, he was a positive commander. But it's, I think, a case of understanding where you fit into the scheme of things. Just because you want to be something, mm-hmm. and you should be. I grew up wanting to serve my country in combat. That wasn't in the cards for me. Um, I, my, my role is to do what I'm doing with the Lost Battalion, to, to do what I'm doing with the First World War. Uh, what happens in Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. has nothing to do with me. My war was 100 years mm-hmm. ago. General Alexander was a fantastic depot division commander, loved by everybody. When he got into combat, they all hated him. So he was he was effective, but he was ineffective in combat. But as a depot division commander, he was famously effective. So where do you think he should have been? You know, it's it's hard. Right, right, right. And you you talk about him, um, General Alexander, and and he's certainly not the only one not knowing the the conditions the men were facing at the front um so in 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 regards to the the lost battalion could you could you just briefly describe for um listeners um the 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 terrain of of charlotteville ravine and and i'm sorry here um yes i visited it last month but i would much rather hear you tell us so sorry (laughs) charlotteville is a narrow, nasty little slit deep in the heart of the forest. <laughs> it see so much better said. <laughs> north and south slopes are a sixty-degree angle. Um, it is heavily wooded. The Charlevoix Brook runs down the middle of it, but it's not much of a brook, as you saw. Um, it's yep. it, it's a very it has very marshy banks with a lot of rush grass. Um, it's very heavily wooded. It's a very terrible place to fight. Uh, but Whittlesey's men got into the ravine, crossed it, and dug into the north face. And they dug in deep, and they had to. Uh, when you look at the positions that the Germans had taken up on, on the north top of the north slope, the ridge on the north slope, and the ridge on the southern slope, mm-hmm. see right into the, the ravine. You can see right, right into everything. If they weren't well, that well dug in, the Germans would have just annihilated them right off the bat. Um, wow. It's, it's a difficult position to fight from. It's a difficult position for the Germans to fight into. Although they could throw machine gun rounds and trench mortars in there at will, um, to actually attack it head on. Mm-hmm. It's, again, it's a 60-degree slope. You're either going downhill or you're going uphill. 
or you're going across the side of the hill. And that makes for difficult fighting to push forward in. It also makes for difficult fighting for men to get up out of holes and push out of. And some of these men climbed into their holes on the night of the second, dug them deep, and they just kept digging and didn't get out of their holes for five days. Uh, everything wow. they had to do, wow. everything they had to do was done in their hole. Um, yep. And it caused a lot of problems with rheumatism. It caused a lot of problems with cramping. Um, feet would swell up. Uh, and it, it just a variety of problems. And then you add on top of it, the weather, um, it rained every day. It was unseasonably cold wow. at that time of year. Um, so you had the bottom of these holes lined with mud and all these guys were getting sick and they were hungry. And then they had to fight against an enemy that was well hidden in, in, in the foliage and it really is a thick forest. Um, and even before the artillery barrage of the fourth came in and stripped a lot of the, the cover from the hillside, um, it was just a terrible, terrible place to fight. But it was a well, it was a well picked position in one on one hand because German artillery from the north couldn't hit them. And that's something that Whittlesey had learned in the oh, first okay. pocket because the, in the first pocket when they were out on Lowell Moor, he had actually stopped on, on the northern side of the hill and they were wide open to German artillery fire. So when he stopped on the northern side of the Charlevoix Ravine and they dug into the side of the hill, um, they, were, they were great. The, the German artillery couldn't get at them. So in that sense, it was a good place. Oh, but as you saw yourself, it's just a nasty little piece of ground. And, uh, yeah. For, and, and, and when you stop to think that you had almost 700 men packed into an area about 75, uh, yards by 300 yards, that's a lot of flesh in one small area. So any one round that landed in there was going to find a lot of flesh and the, the, the wow. shells did quite a bit of damage. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's the, the ground is, um, um, so on the D 66 road, um, out of Binarville, you head East, you'll come to Charlevoix, um, ravine. And then if you continue on up the road, you'll see the, the lost battalion marker. It's a pretty simple stone marker, but it's, it doesn't look like anything else in the area. So it's, it's right there. Um, and it points down the slope. It points down into the lost battalion position. Once you actually get down into that position, like that ground is so incredibly steep that it's, it's difficult to stand up straight. Like I've never, I've never experienced anything like it. Like, um, it was, it was pretty wild. I, I have video of it. It'll be up on, on the website and it's up on the, um, Facebook page and everything. Um, but it's, it's just am amazing that, that anyone could, could settle there for five days, but then, you know, you're talking 700 men in, into that hillside. And then defend, um, it, defend it for five days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not just sitting there and hanging out actively defending it as well. Um, now quick, quick question, uh, 
Mr. Laplander, like the that road w- was that road already there in 1918? Yes. Um, all those roads, okay. all those roads that, that are there now were there in 1918. The only difference now is okay. that they have you know macadam on them now, and back then they were just uh, mm-hmm. gravel, gravel and okay, okay, okay. In in the forest, you know, today it's it's very thick. It was very thick back then. Um, but this, this part of the Argonne forest, it hadn't seen the type of fighting that like that Verdun and Valcois had seen. So was it all shell blasted or was it just pretty thinned out by artillery? It wasn't like you would see on the Somme or in Verdun or anything when Mm -hmm. you at the base of the forest where the, where the front line was for four years, Mm -hmm. there was an area that was devastation. It was absolute devastation. But then mm-hmm. the, the farther north you went into the forest beyond that, there was less and less until there was nothing. There was no fighting. There was no devastation at all until we got there. Um, the ravine that leads up to the Charlevoix ravine is called the Ravine d'Argon. And the Ravine d'Argon had been blasted pretty good um, while the 308th and 307th were fighting to get up to Whittlesey. Uh the Charlevoix saw its share of being blasted. If you if you walk along uh, the wagon road at the bottom of the hill and you go from left to right, mm-hmm. um, as you get farther over toward the right, mm-hmm. you'll see that there's fewer and fewer of the foxholes, and the ground just seems to be undulated. And that's because that's where the artillery barrage of the 4th did its most work and just kind of leveled everything. Wow. And you'll also notice there are no big trees in that area. There's a lot of little trees. There's a lot of brush and stuff, but there's no big trees left in that area. Uh, nothing, and after 100 years, nothing has really sprouted up and gotten really huge, like in over towards the left flank. Um, wow. It's, it's another one of those things that um, now when they were in the ravine, they could never understand why these guys were taking so long to get over the the uh, the ridge behind them and get through to them, and when they were relieved, mm-hmm. and then they walked back down the ravine d'Argan, they all just stared in amazement at how devastated the forest was in that area from the fighting, and it was heavy, it was hard. But you go there today, and it's hard to picture that. Um, you have to really look. You can see the trees that were scarred by shrapnel. Um, you can see where wow. the shell holes were. You can see where the German machine guns were and all, and where the trenches were. You can see it all, but you have to look for it. Um, mm-hmm. The forest, mm-hmm. the forest hides its pain very well. Wow, 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 wow! So, d- seven hundred guys, uh, a position it, um, three three hundred seventy five meters by by one hundred. Is that correct? Yes. Um, packed into this hillside, a small, you know, a really small area, a lot of, a lot of humanity in there. One, really one guy in charge, um, Major Whittlesey. Um, can, can you speak to a little bit about his leadership? Like how he accomplished this massive task of not only defending this position, but keeping these 700 guys from, deserting from from surrendering with you know or just keeping them together and, and on task well 
Whittlesey himself was a very good officer. He was a very good officer, very conscientious, uh, very aware of his goals, very aware of his objectives, understood the need to reach goals and objectives, and understood the need in a bigger sense. He could see the bigger picture where a lot of uh, line officers couldn't, couldn't really understand what was happening outside of their own little, uh, you know, force of vision. But Whittlesey had, since he was a a lawyer, had a tendency to think several moves ahead and he could think in the abstract. He was not a combat Mm -hmm. commander. He went to, went to France as a paper pusher. He was in the headquarters company. Um, and most of the guys that, that served with him for a long time understood him to be a very conscientious officer. And they knew if the job was going to, was being bossed by Whittlesey, it was going to be done right. And they, they really appreciated that. And they also appreciated that he understood his men and he cared about them. He truly did care about them. And after the attrition that they had taken on, on the Vell in the summer of 18, just before they moved into the Argonne, Whittlesey was placed in command of the 1st Battalion, 308th, simply because he was the next in line. And the machine gun officer over in the 307th recommended him because he was the only one who could tell him anything, he said. So Whittlesey became this this combat leader, and his first combat assignment is the toughest assignment that they've ever faced. He has to be the point unit to the 308th moving into the Argonne Forest, going into the toughest fight that they would ever. Mm-hmm. He learned a lot on the go. He asked a lot of questions from other combat commanders that knew more about him, that knew more than he did. Um, he he made his mistakes, but he learned from them immediately. But he did suffer from some real basic combat problems. Um, and the biggest one is that you see him packing 700 men into this very small area. And that's, mm-hmm. he, that's him after watching two weeks of attrition, watching two weeks of new replacements falling left and right and people being blasted to pieces that he was sending into combat. Um, he wanted mm-hmm. to keep everybody close. It was kind of the, the mother hen type thing. Mother hen wants to keep all her chicks close and he wanted to do the same thing. Local right. control. He wanted local control. He was suffering from, from a type of, of combat fatigue at that time. Um, but he also understood that if they did not get this job done, they were going to be in that forest forever. So they needed to push forward heavy, hard, and fast, get this done so they could go home. And he, he had that he was the one who had to order them into this. He was the one who had to send them to their deaths. And he was the one that was stuck in between the company commanders who were actually fighting the local actions that won in the Argonne. And that's what won in the Argonne was small local, small unit, local action. He was the go between, between those company commanders and the regimental and regimental didn't understand what they were up against. They really didn't understand. Neither did brigade until they actually went down there till the brigade commander, the regimental commander actually got onto the front and saw what was going on. And so he took a lot of heat. The battalion commander takes a lot of heat. Uh, mm-hmm. but by and large, he was loved by his men because he cared about them so much and because he made them understand 
that if we don't do this, we're not going to leave until it's done. So let's just do it. And he would never purposely send people into anything that they were just going to get slaughtered in. He would always try to find a solution. He would always stand up for them and do everything that he could to make sure that his units, um, while they were fighting hard, got everything that they could in the way of ammunition and food and water. Um, he was, he was very much loved by a lot of his command. When they got into the ravine, he was a commander par excellence in a lot of ways. He never showed fear. Um, I, the man was terrified inside. He had to be, but he never showed fear. He walked around upright almost the entire time. Wow. Um, he very, very seldom ever ducked. Uh, when shellfire came in, of course, like anybody, he would be, you know, startled by by the, the the shells and stuff. But he never ran and cried and screamed or anything like that. Um, his second in command did come and find him crying in his sleep one night, at the bottom of his hole, which will tell you exactly the the size of the knots that were inside this guy. Uh, right, right. But and he encouraged them constantly. You know, in, in the middle of that artillery barrage on the 4th, when everybody else was was terrified and running and stuff, he was walking across the, the pocket just telling everybody, calm down, calm down. They'll realize what's going on in a minute. We'll be all right. Just relax. Just relax. And uh, he did that routinely during attacks. And when the Germans would attack, he wasn't sitting behind them, you know, pushing them forward, yelling them to go forward. He was at the head of the, of, of the line helping to defend them. He had a rifle in his hand, too. Wow. wow. And everything that he did in, in that ravine, it really endeared him to his men for life. There were some who, who did take off against orders. Um, the party that left on the morning of the 7th that was ambushed by the Germans, the nine-man party that left that was ambushed by the Germans, and that one lone soldier... Lowell Hollingshead came back in with the surrender letter. Uh, mm-hmm. That was against orders. Whittlesey didn't know anything about that. There were a couple other men that had dropped off, and he did hear start hearing towards the end a lot of guys suggesting that maybe we should just give this up. You know, I don't want to die here. We're all going to die here. There was one officer who had sent him a message that said we should probably consider surrendering the position now. There's hardly anybody left to fight. The place looks like a butcher shop. We don't have anything to eat. And he went over, talked to the officer, and just calmed him down and said, look, they're going to break through to us. There's two million doughboys working behind us that's going to get up here. The 307th and 308th are never going to stop until they break through to us. All we got to do is hang on. If we can sit here, we have pierced their line. And that means everybody's going to have to catch up with us. And then we break the line wide open, and we have obtained our objective. Wow. He was a fantastic that's, commander. That's some that's some stunning leadership because under that kind of stress for him to ma- maintain that composure and and to just you know instead of like screaming or 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 arresting that that officer like he he chose a much more kind of much more humane route of like just explaining it to him like that's that's really something else. He was else. a very humane. He was a very humane man. But he paid for it later. What we now know as PTSD is something that he suffered for the rest of his short life after he came home. He 
he really did pay for it. Um, and part of the, part of what, what, uh, compiled that was that he was a hero that they made him a hero that, you know, they gave him the medal of honor in honor of his unit of what they did. And he understood mm-hmm. that he was the representative for all those men. They couldn't hand out that medal to everybody. Right. So they give right. it to him as a representative. And as a matter of fact, the first thing that he said to reporters after he saw them coming at him, after they'd been relieved from the pocket was don't write about me, write about these men. And he maintained that for the rest of his life, that it was the men that they should be writing. It's the men they should be thinking about, but that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about the iron commander of the lost battalion and hear his story. And he just, he couldn't, it didn't sit well with him. And all it did was rake the ashes over and stir things up for him again and again and again. Yeah. Poor, poor guy. Like really, really poor guy. Um, the the demons that he carried and then how um you know he, he eventually com- committed suicide in 1921 oh, i believe november 1921 mm, awful um but very very sad um very sad very sad ending um wow it, so all of this the um and the germans surrounding them they, how, how did they view these, these Americans who, who they had surrounded? They, they really admired them. Germany really admired American troops. They didn't think that they were very bright because it, <laughs> it, it, in the beginning, we, we perpetrated, mm-hmm. a, we made a lot of mistakes, a, a lot of stupid head on charges and frontal assaults that they, the Germans couldn't believe what they were seeing. Wow. We haven't seen this since 1914. This is crazy. But at the same time, they always admired the American grit and the American courage. Um, in the in the Charlevoix, they thought these guys were just incredible. There was a story of one uh, doughboy that had been wounded in the Lost Battalion while out on patrol. And mm-hmm. the Germans found him out in the ravine. And they bandaged him up and they gave him the choice. They said, look. You guys are something else. We will either take you back with us and you can go to a prison camp or we'll just let you go back to your unit if you want. And he said he'd rather go back to his unit. So he shared a cigarette with his German friend and then he went back to his unit and the German went back to his unit. They had a lot of respect for him. They had a lot of respect for him because of what these guys were accomplishing, what they were doing. But at the same time, you know, they kind of felt that it was useless, that they were eventually just going to crush this pocket of men. They, and it was kind of a waste. And in the end, had the Germans attacked one more time after that final attack on the 7th, had they come in one more time, they would have walked right across the pocket. Wow. Wow. It wow. was that close. Fate. Wow. Wow. So the, the Lost Battalion is finally relieved on October 7th, 1918. Um, as, as you said earlier, of the approximately 700 men, um, 194 walked out um, also, as you said, un- under their own power. Um, 
What what became of those 194 men? A lot of them went back on the line. Uh, there was a, a portion of them that went back on the line within 24 hours. They, they were able wow. to bring them back, get them a change of clothes, clean them up and feed them, get some sleep. But they there was still a war on. And 308 still had to fight. And because of the Lost Battalion situation and what it had taken to get through to them, Manpower was at a premium, and replacements weren't coming in yet. Um, you, you, for instance, if you look at Company A of the 308, they started out on July twenty or on September twenty sixth with two hundred and forty one men, and mm-hmm. by October 9th, they had thirty four left. Oh my! These God. are the kind of casualties, and this this was this was typical of almost all the units in the Argonne. So they needed every man that they could get on the line. Others, uh, like Company A, uh, saw very little service after that. Uh, Company A had to be completely rebuilt. And they did see some action on the line, but not a lot. Uh, wow. Other, others that were carried out of the pocket that lived didn't get back to the line until after the war was over. They didn't get back to their units until after the war was over. Some did, never got back to their units. They were just shipped home right away. Wow. It, they really scattered out. And it was, it was like that for the rest of their lives, too. It was, it was a real turning point for a lot of them. Um, nobody was the same after the war, especially after that incident in the Charlevoix. Nobody was the same. But it, it welded them together, and they became friends for life. Lots of them became friends for life. Um, and it gave them something to grip onto uh, so that they could, they could make sense of, you know, what was ahead of them. You know, after the twenties, they went into the depression and for them, the depression was not as bad as it could have been because they'd seen so much worse. Um, right. It, it, it really was a defining moment in their lives. Wow. So, um, so this is really, so this, these guys have, have a bond for the rest of their lives. So how, how is this, um, how is this an, an American story? It was, I like, I, I say, I say it's the premier American story of the American participation in the war because it showed the American grit and determination it showed that we weren't going to give up, that you could beat the hell out of us all mm-hmm. you wanted. We were not going to stop. We were not going to give up. We were there to win this doggone war and go home. We were determined. We were focused. We made our mistakes. You know, there was, there's no mistaking that, but we were sure that we were going to win. And it, that's a very American way of thinking. Um, American generals are the best generals. American battles are the biggest battles, you know. And whether that's true or not, it's, it's a very American way to think. Um, and we did everything that we could to bring that, that sense of America to the war, that, that esprit de corps that the other allies were lacking by that time because they'd been fighting for so long and lost so many men in so many mm-hmm. just god awful battles. 
um, this was our chance to shine. And by God, we were going to do it. And the 77th, I think, is more indicative of what America was at that time than any other unit. Because in the 77th, you had all these guys from New York City. And it was New York street toughs and guys from upstate New York. And then you had immigrants, lots and lots of immigrants. And one of the interesting things about the draft in the First World War is that you didn't have to be a United States citizen to be drafted. You just had to live here. So <laughs> these guys were getting drafted. They weren't even actual citizens, but they were anxious to serve their country, their new country. They wanted to be Americans. Mm -hmm. And this is how they were going to do it. This is how they were going to prove they were Americans. And being an American at that time was something that really meant something to people. And being an American in the American Expeditionary Force fighting to win this war was really something else. It was, it was a grand adventure. And they, they took it to heart. And the 77th, by the time they got into the Argonne, they had received replacements from the Midwest and from the Pacific Northwest and from out West and some from down South. So you had a true melting pot division, a little bit of everything. You had, you know, a Swedish logger sitting in, you know, who could barely speak English sitting in a foxhole next to a guy who grew up in Queens and they were the best of friends. Wow. They couldn't understand each other. They were the best wow. of friends. You know? <laughs> and, and they, they that's awesome. That's, that's... Wow. That's awesome. That's that. Well, there you go. That, that truly is an American story. And, uh, was it, it was the 77th, right? That was, um, when they entered the line, um, the, the Germans across no man's land could hear Italian being spoken and they actually reported back. They're like, yeah, there's, there's a division of Italians across oh, from yeah. us, but it was actually guys from New York. <laughs> oh yeah. And, uh, and on the Vell, the, when the Germans really showed the 77th, what combat was, um, the Germans realized that the 77th was such a mixed division that they were taking American uniforms and putting them on and slipping into American chow lines and listening to conversation and talking with the doughboys and stuff and then going back and reporting what they heard. And nobody knew, you know, nobody was the wiser because everybody had an accent in the 77th. You know, and there, there were wow. plenty of guys in the 77th that couldn't speak hardly any English at all. And there were a lot of Germans in the 77th. There were a lot of Germans. There was one fella, as a matter, matter of fact, in the Lost Battalion, his name was Max Louis Probst. His brother was in the army. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. Wow. You know, it, it, it wow. was that kind of division. Wow. That, and again, that's, that's an American story too, with, with the, the a big melting pot of, of ethnicities. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Mr. Mr. Laplander, you, um, you also work as a battlefield tour guide, um, at the time of recording, um, you're about to head off to France for, for a couple of months. Um, now will you continue working as a, a tour guide post November 2018. I don't see any reason why why we should think that um, there's any reason to stop. Uh, 
things things are going to calm down some. I mean, a lot of the the hoopla, as much as there is, and that's not a lot um, concerning the first world war, will go away. But I don't think I don't think it will ever totally go away, and I don't think it will ever become lost to history again like it is. I think the World War One Centennial Commission, the U.S. Foundation for the Commemoration of the World Wars, and the Center for Military History the Pritzker Museum, and so many others, the, you know, the World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, have really found mm-hmm. a rebirth and have really found um, a group in, in the United States that's growing steadily that will refuse to let the First World War fade into history again. I don't think it ever will be what it was, let's say, in the 80s and 90s when nobody knew anything about it, nobody cared. Um, because all those all those guys right. were pretty much done, you know. All those those old timers, people like Rick Rubin were the last ones to actually go out and talk to these guys. And as a matter of fact, Rick mm-hmm. and I have had several conversations about meeting those guys. And he was always fascinated because every one of them would always look at him. So you know, I'm telling you stuff I haven't told anybody in 80 years. And he'd say, "Well, why didn't you? Why didn't you wow. say anything?" And he says, "You know what? Nobody ever asked. Nobody wanted to hear it." And, and you know, meanwhile, we've got all these guys that are just fawning all over the World War II generation. Not that we shouldn't. They, they're great. They saved the war from, from, or they saved the world from tyranny between 1939 and 1945. Without their sacrifices, this world would be a whole lot different, I'll tell you that. But before the greatest generation came their fathers, we can't forget that. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and in speaking of not forgetting, um, you are also the driving force behind um, an organization called Doughboy MIA, uh, Missing in Action. Um, can you tell us more about that uh, and also how listeners can support it? That's that's also a big deal. Doughboy MIA is the only organization in the world that is completely dedicated to making as full accounting as possible of the 4,423 missing in action from the First World War, missing in action U.S. service personnel from the First World War. Um, What we do is we comb through records, and we are hoping to use modern-day technology to pick up the baton where the Graves Registration Service was unable to do any more work after following the war. Between 1919 and 1934, Graves Registration Service handled over 80,000 burials overseas. And that, that there's wow. only 4,423 that are still missing in action, and over half of those are missing at sea, will show you that they did a great job. But we have technologies oh, okay. today that they didn't have them. You know, deep penetration metal detectors, ground penetrating radar, mm-hmm. cadaver dogs that are trained to look for remains from as far back as the revolution. Um, wow. Com- combining that with massive amounts of desktop research that we're doing into the records that the graves registration left behind leads us to believe that we would be able to at least make an educated assumption about what happened to some of these men, while we will also be able to go out and attempt battlefield recovery of remains 
for some of the others. Um, and again, this even this ties into the Lost Battalion. There was one fella in the Lost Battalion who actually started this. His dog tag turned up in the pocket back in 2000. And by 2004, wow. I had it in my hands, and we started doing the research on this guy. And we were able to trace his remains from the Charlevoix Ravine to a temporary grave at the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery where they extracted him one last time to try to identify him because he had no tags. But they were mm -hmm. unable to, so he was buried in a grave marked unknown. Unfortunately, we're still trying to find the paperwork that will tell us which grave he's in. Once we do that, we've got our guy. Um, but that's another piece of the Lost Battalion puzzle we're, we're looking on. But it, it, it really launched the Doughboy MI program. Uh, and then last year we had our first success. We, we discovered that a, a sailor who had disappeared in May of 1917 from his ship during a war cruise had been forgotten on the list of the missing. And uh, just this past year in May, his name was carved onto the wall of the missing at Brookwood American Cemetery in Great Britain, where they put the missing at sea. For the first time since 1934, the name was added to the list. So our, our work, our work oh, that's, does that's... have uh, some successes. It's slow work, and it does involve getting a hold of a lot of records and uh, making trips to various parts of the country. We do not take government funding for this. The, de the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, the DPAA, which is responsible for going out and finding remains and bringing them home, does not have a mission statement that takes them back any further than World War II. So that's where, we, oh. since we are not a part of the DPAA, we do not get government funding, nor do we seek it. The government has got enough people with their hands in the pocket. <laughs> and the last thing they need is somebody else mm -hmm. begging them for money. So we are uh, completely publicly supported. We are a 501c3 organization through the United States Foundation for the Commemoration of the World Wars. Uh, it is a tax-deductible donation if you make it, and our program is called 10 for Them. All we ask for is 10 bucks. Whether you donate it once or make it a reciprocal payment once a month of 10 bucks, um, all we ask for, we, we realize that our program is not going to be uppermost in anyone's mind except ours, but who doesn't have 10 bucks? Who can't kick 10 bucks in? And then mm -hmm. with that 10 bucks, you're helping us to possibly find somebody, to name somebody, to name a grave, or to bring somebody home. And it's the first world war, was the first world war, was the first war where we practiced the policy of no man left behind. The first time we decided everybody comes home. And we left it up to the parents. If you wanted your boy to come home, we would bring them home. Um, otherwise, we set up these beautiful cemeteries overseas. They went to extraordinary lengths to ID remains. And they worked very hard at it and did a very good job at it. Um, where we pick up the baton will begin, really begin in earnest in 2019, exactly when a hundred years from when the Graves Registration Service was doing the majority of their work. So, and we will continue as long as it takes us 
to do what we must do to try to make as full accounting as possible. Your $10 makes that possible. It helps us make that possible. You can go to www.ww1cc.org slash MIA. That is our website at the U.S. Centennial Commission's uh, web appearance. And on the left-hand, lower left-hand side of each one of the pages on Doughboy MIA is a donation button. And we urge you, kick in your 10, 10 for them. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I'll, I'll, uh, I will share that link, um, as well, um, in the episode notes so that listeners can immediately just click right over, um, and, and, uh, and contribute. Um, wow. Fascinating. Um, such a great talk, Mr. Laplander. Thank, thank you so much for, for coming on and thank you for, for taking the time to, um, just discuss everything um that that we have this has been this is this has been great so um oh my god this is <laughs> that, i appreciate wow. the opportunity to awesome, spread the word awesome. a little bit and i appreciate what you're doing with this podcast it's 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 really wonderful to see younger folks getting into it and to see the new technology that can spread this word you know um i'm Sometimes my wife calls me an analog guy in a digital world. Actually, I'm more like an acetate guy in a digital world. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when, you, when it comes right down to it, we have these, none of what we're doing, none of what any of us are doing today could be done without the internet. It, it really was the internet that made it possible for me to gather all that lost battalion information and collate it. Otherwise, I'd just have, you know, boxfuls of records everywhere. <laughs> Um, right, right, right. But it's so cool. It's, it's, um, the, the internet has also been excellent for, uh, um, connecting like-minded enthusiasts. Um, you know, uh, I cited, um, Randy Galky's, uh, uh, both the website and, and his Facebook page, which is just amazing. Like, um, just getting so much great information there. Um, so yeah, it's it's been this has been really cool, and, and anything um, that that we can do here at, at the BFWWP, we're, we're more than happy to, to help continue spreading the word. Um, I'll be writing about the Mers Argon at my horrible production rate. Uh, I will be writing about this battle probably for at least the next year or so. So uh, I'm going to be diving into the details and and digging into the book. So. So this we're, we're in it for the long haul though. And, and we're here for the details. And so <laughs> you can, uh, your listeners can, can click over to finding the lost battalion.com or finding the lost battalion on Facebook. Great. There's also a find lost battalion mm-hmm. page on the world war one centennial commission website. Um, you can also visit Doughboy MIA on Facebook and join and keep up with what's going on. Um, we usually feature Monday's MIA. Every Monday we have a fresh MIA that we're, we're featuring. This is his story. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, uh, it won't be on the, uh, on the website for the next three weeks because I'll be gone and I won't be able to get to it. Correct. We urge you to come over there and join in and 
get the updates and find out what's happening in the world of MIA and what's happening in the world of the Lost Battalion. And the big hint for 2019 is the Charles Whittlesey biography, Soldier, Socialist, Patriot, Pacifist. I will have that ready for 2019. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. I'm definitely getting a copy. So, so am I. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Laplander.